You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Scribner, publisher of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War, by Pulitzer Prize finalist S.C. Gwynn. If Gwynn's name seems familiar to you, it might just be because we've previously recommended his biography of Stonewall Jackson, Rebel Yell. Here, with his new book, Hymns of the Republic, Gwynn has put together another home run, this one looking at the fourth and final year of the Civil War. One of our favorite authors, Sebastian Younger, says, S.C. Gwynn's riveting book, Hymns of the Republic, finally made me realize that one cannot fully understand America without understanding the American Civil War. Well, we agree with that. And since it's going to be a while before we get to the war's final year here on the podcast, you can satisfy yourself with Gwynn's book in the meantime. Hymns of the Republic is on sale now in hardcover, ebook, or audiobook, so get your copy today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 304 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, in the last show, we talked about how important it is for a military commander to have good, reliable information about the enemy's strength, position, activities, and intentions. Knowing this to be true, when Joe Hooker replaced Burnside as commander of the Army of the Potomac in early 1863, he issued orders for the establishment of a dedicated military intelligence unit. This new organization was the BMI, the Bureau of Military Information, and it was headed by Colonel George Sharp. As we talked about in the last episode, reports had been accumulating regarding a concentration of the rebel cavalry under Jeb Stuart at Culpeper Courthouse. The Confederate horsemen were gathering at Culpeper, so the stories went, in preparation for a big raid of some sort, and since Stuart, on more than one occasion, had already embarrassed the Federals with raids into the Army's rear, well, these reports that he was planning another such operation were completely believable. However, in reality, the rebel horsemen were gathering at Culpeper in advance of the Army of Northern Virginia's strike up into Pennsylvania. Stewart's mission would be to screen the movement of the Confederate infantry while it was on the march. 
That is, the rebel cavalry units would be positioned between the Federals and the marching Confederate infantry to keep the Yankees from getting any good information about what Lee's army was up to. The flip side of that was that while the rebel cavalry tried to keep the Yankees in the dark about what the rebel army was up to, Stuart would, at the same time, attempt to keep tabs on the movements of the Army of the Potomac so that Robert E. Lee had good information about what the enemy was doing. At any rate, these would be the tasks assigned to Stuart's horsemen during the upcoming campaign, and that's why the rebel troopers, about 10,000 of them, had been gathering in Culpeper County, some 30 miles northwest of Fredericksburg. But as we said last time, in this instance, the normally reliable George Sharp of the BMI badly misread the situation because he believed the rumors that Jeb Stuart was preparing for a big cavalry raid. Based on that misreading of the situation, Joe Hooker had decided he'd take action and derail Stuart's raid before it could even get started. And so on June 7th, Hooker issued orders that would send about 8,700 Federal cavalry, bolstered by several thousand Union infantry, across the Rappahannock, upriver from Fredericksburg, to, quote, disperse and destroy the rebel force assembled in the vicinity of Culpeper. The cavalry battle at Brandy Station on June 9, 1863, was the first engagement of the Gettysburg Campaign, and is notable since it proved to be the largest cavalry battle of the entire war. We wanted to say here at the top of the episode that if you open up your Gettysburg Campaign Atlas by Phil Lano, you'll see there are 11, count them, 11 excellent maps showing the fighting at Brandy Station on June 9th. Just the day before, a little south of Brandy Station, which was a small whistle stop on the railroad between Culpeper Courthouse and the Rappahannock River, the ever-flamboyant Stuart had staged a grand review of his Confederate cavalry for Robert E. Lee. In describing the spectacle in a letter to his wife, Lee would write, quote, It was a splendid sight. The men and horses looked well. Stuart was in all his glory. But, truth be told, it was Stuart's third such review in two weeks, and although less elaborate than the one that was held just a few days before, on June 5th, this one still went on for hours, leaving the rebel troopers and their horses exhausted. Actually, Stuart probably should have just canceled the June 8th review, since his orders were to move out early the very next morning to guard the march of Lee's infantry, as the foot soldiers continued marching west toward the Blue Ridge Mountains on the next stage of the journey that would take the Army of Northern Virginia up into Pennsylvania. In any case, that night, the night of June 8th, still basking in the glow of getting to show off his command to Robert E. Lee, Jeb Stuart allowed the various units of that command to scatter widely across the landscape so they might conveniently reach the Rappahannock crossings and ford the river the next morning. 
Stewart himself made his headquarters bivouac on Fleetwood Hill, an elevated ridge overlooking Brandy Station. When Stewart laid his head down that night, if he gave any thought at all to the enemy, he probably wondered just where, north of the Rappahannock, he might first encounter the Yankee cavalry that had been active in that area lately. But in fact, on the night of June 8th, the Yankee cavalry was just barely north of the river, quietly massing in great force opposite Beverly Ford and Kelly's Ford, so as to cross the Rappahannock in the early hours of Tuesday the 9th, to carry out Hooker's orders to disperse and destroy the rebel horsemen who were reported to have assembled in the vicinity of Culpeper. The mission Hooker had assigned to his new cavalry chief, 38-year-old Brigadier General Alfred Pleasanton, was a straightforward one. Pleasanton was simply to smash up the concentration of rebel horsemen at Culpeper before Jeb Stuart could make any mischief. After the federal defeat at Chancellorsville, the commander of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps, Major General George Stoneman, left on May 15th to take medical leave. This was just as well, since Joe Hooker was extremely displeased with Stoneman's performance during the just-concluded campaign. With Stoneman's departure, his senior division commander, Pleasanton, an 1844 graduate of West Point, assumed temporary command of the Cavalry Corps. Just days before the Battle of Brandy Station, Hooker confirmed that Pleasanton was no longer in just temporary command of the Cavalry Corps. It was his. However, not everyone was happy with Pleasanton's advancement to that top spot since he arrived at it with a less than stellar reputation. Eric Wittenberg, in his book, The Battle of Brandy Station, writes, quote, Many believed Pleasanton to be a conniver, a manipulator, and a man desperate to advance his own cause. Active and energetic, he swaggered like a Bantam rooster, exuding self-confidence. He was something of a dandy, preferring fancy uniforms, a straw hat, kid gloves, and a riding stick. Pleasanton's courage in battle was suspect. He was, quote-unquote, notorious among those who had served under him and seen him under fire. Charles Adams, a captain in the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry, who also happened to be the grandson and great-grandson of U.S. presidents, noted that, quote, Pleasanton is, pure and simple, a newspaper humbug. He does nothing save with a view to a newspaper paragraph. After Stoneman's departure, Hooker reportedly wanted to appoint Brigadier General John Buford to command the Cavalry Corps, but Pleasanton's General's Commission predated Buford's by 11 days, and for that reason, Hooker felt Pleasanton had to get the top spot. And so, when Pleasanton assumed command of the Cavalry Corps, Buford took over command of the 1st Cavalry Division. In the summer of 1863, John Buford was 37 years old, an 1848 graduate of West Point, 
and one of the Union's finest cavalry officers. Third Division Commander David McMurtry Gregg was nearly Buford's clone. That is, he was a highly competent, no-nonsense brigadier who earned intense loyalty from those who served under him. Another West Point graduate, the 30-year-old Gregg, had excelled in regimental and brigade command before being promoted to divisional leadership after Fredericksburg. 30-year-old Colonel Alfred Napoleon Alexander Duffy of the 1st Rhode Island Cavalry commanded the 2nd Cavalry Division. Born in Paris, France, Duffy had served in the French Cavalry and taken part in campaigns in Africa and in the Crimean War, before coming to New York with a young American woman with whom he'd fallen in love. When Hooker sacked the commander of the 2nd Cavalry Division during the Chancellorsville campaign, command of the division went to Duffy as its senior subordinate. However, as it turned out, Duffy's tenure as division commander would be short, as it quickly became apparent that leading such a large formation was beyond his capabilities. For the upcoming operation, two brigades of Union infantry would join Pleasanton's three divisions of cavalry. Each brigade numbered about 1,500 foot soldiers. Hooker wanted the infantry to cross the Rappahannock with Pleasanton, but then their task would be to secure the fords there at the river so that the Federal horsemen would be free to proceed onto Culpeper and do battle with the enemy cavalry. According to Pleasanton's plan, Buford and the infantry of Brigadier General Adelbert Ames would force Beverly Ford, while Gregg and Duffy, supported by Brigadier General David Russell's foot soldiers, would push across Kelly's Ford. The two river crossings were over five miles apart. But then, while Duffy proceeded to Stevensburg to shield the Federal southern flank, against any possible interference from Confederate reinforcements that might be drawn to the fighting, Gregg and Buford would close the gap between their two wings by linking up near Brandy Station, after which their combined force would advance the six miles to Culpeper, where they would do battle with Jeb Stewart's rebel horsemen. However, what actually happened on June 9th held surprises for both Alfred Pleasanton and Jeb Stewart. For Stewart, because he never thought for a moment the Yankees would attack him, and for the Federals, because the rebel horsemen weren't where Pleasanton expected they would be. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Pleasanton's timetable had called for the federal crossings to begin at quote-unquote earliest dawn, which would have been about 4.30 on the morning of June 9th. By the by, this was considerably earlier than Stuart had set for his crossing of the Rappahannock. But in any case, as it happened, only half of Pleasanton's force followed the timetable, which left the whole operation seriously out of balance. That's because at Kelly's Ford to the south, Duffy's small division was slated to lead the advance of the Federal left wing, but Duffy was misdirected on his approach march to the river and, as a result, didn't reach the crossing site until after 6 a.m. That meant Gregg's division, which was to follow Duffy across the Rappahannock, didn't complete its crossing until 9 o'clock. By then, the Battle of Brandy Station was already four hours old and was being fought on the Federal side exclusively by John Buford's forces. By 5 a.m., Buford's right wing, spearheaded by Benjamin Grimes Davis's brigade, had rushed through swirling white mist to cross the Rappahannock to the north at Beverly Ford. Davis's troopers seized the crossing with hardly a shot being fired, the surprised Confederate pickets, a company of the 6th Virginia Cavalry, rapidly fell back before the enemy advance, but not before sending riders off to raise the alarm. The rebel pickets nearest cavalry support was Grumble Jones' brigade of Virginians, encamped at St. James Church, some two miles away. Incredibly, camped between the church and Beverly Ford, were four batteries of Stuart's horse artillery, which had been rather casually posted there in preparation for the day's planned march north of the river. Well, that Stuart would have positioned unsupported artillery so close to the ford speaks volumes about how little thought he gave to the possibility the Yankees might actually cross the river and attack him. But anyhow, the rebel horse artillery here was entirely on its own, except for that company of the 6th Virginia on picket duty at Beverly Ford, and just then they were hightailing it for the rear. Regarding the events of that morning, artilleryman Charles Phelps, in a letter home, wrote that, quote, 
About daylight, the Yanks drove in our picket stationed at Beverly's Ford on the Rappahannock and came near surprising us in bed. They charged up to our camp and killed and wounded several horses before we could get out. That they got out at all was thanks, first, to Captain James Hart, who managed to drag one gun of his South Carolina battery into the roadway and open on the charging Yankee cavalry with canister. Behind this covering fire, the rest of the cannon were hitched up and started for the rear. At the same time, a ragtag force of rebel troopers, hustled to the front by Grumble Jones to rescue the horse artillery batteries, charged headlong into the vanguard of the Federal Column. Those rebel cavalrymen from the 6th and 7th Virginia, many of them half-dressed and some even riding bareback, halted the enemy advance long enough for the horse artillery to make good its escape and established a gun line back on a ridge near St. James Church. The Federal advance was further disrupted when Grimes Davis, fighting at the head of his brigade, was shot and killed. So far, the battle was one of mutual surprise. The Confederates had been caught completely off guard by the Yankees' unexpected attack across the river, while the Federals were quite astonished to encounter fierce resistance so close to the Rappahannock when the rebel cavalry was supposed to be miles away at Culpeper. In any event, both sides now scrambled to reinforce the escalating fight at St. James Church. At the news that the Federals were across the river in force, Jeb Stewart, from his headquarters at Fleetwood Hill, sent couriers flying in every direction. To Beverly Robertson, to cover the lower Rappahannock fords to the south. To Fitz Lee's brigade, eight miles in the rear, to come to the front. To Rooney Lee, to support Grumble Jones on Jones' left. And to Wade Hampton, down near Stevensburg, to come up and tie into Jones' line on the right. Meanwhile, John Buford, seeing the rebel line swelling into a broad arc in front of him, widened his own line to the left by bringing Devon's brigade to the front and ordering his reserve brigade, composed of U.S. regulars and the 6th Pennsylvania, up to support the right and center. Buford posted his supporting brigade of infantry in the woods to the rear to act as an anchor if his line should waver at any point. This maneuvering along the St. James Church battle lines was accompanied by a series of charges and countercharges across a half mile of open field with much close-in cavalry fighting, both mounted and dismounted. In addition, the Confederates made skillful use of sharpshooters to harass the Yankee flanks. In that letter home we mentioned before, Confederate horse artillerist Charles Phelps wrote, I had a fine opportunity of witnessing some fine cavalry fighting. Our men charged them into the woods, but were met by two brigades of infantry and had to fall back. Then the Yanks charged our cavalry. I thought at one time I was gone, the fighting being so general that we could not use our pieces. 
The Yankee countercharge Phelps described was launched by the 6th Pennsylvania, supported by the 6th U.S. regulars. Captain Hart, whose South Carolina battery was a target of the attack, admitted, quote, never rode troopers more gallantly as under a fire of shell and shrapnel and finally of canister. They dashed up to the very muzzles, then through and beyond our guns, passing between Hampton's left and Jones' right. Here they were simultaneously attacked from both flanks and the survivors driven back. The 6th U.S. regulars lost 67 men in the charge, a quarter of their attacking force. The 6th Pennsylvania reported one-third of its men unhorsed by the, quote, terrible fire of rifle shot in front and grape and canister from the enemy's battery on our left. Buford would credit this bold attack with stabilizing his left, and in fact, the two sides appeared so stunned by the ferocious combat here that an uneasy calm fell across this part of the battlefield. Jeb Stewart was now on the scene of the fighting at St. James Church, and during the lull Tracy just mentioned, several of his more youthful staff officers scrambled into a big cherry tree to feast on the ripe fruit, while pitching some down to Stewart and the others. Suddenly, an enemy shell came screaming in and crashed through the branches of the tree, sending the cherry pickers all plunging to the ground in unseemly haste. At this, Stuart roared with laughter and called out, What's the matter, boys? Cherries getting sour? Jeb Stuart was still in a good humor when a courier reached him from Grumble Jones, relaying a warning from Beverly Robertson's pickets that Federal cavalry was on the march after crossing the Rappahannock at Kelly's Ford. Stuart, who thought little of Robertson and disliked Jones, dismissed this news, saying to the courier, Tell General Jones to attend to the Yankees in his front, and I'll watch his flanks. Okie dokie. Well, it didn't take much effort to read between the lines and recognize the scorn in Stuart's reply. So Grumble Jones, who had little use for Stuart to begin with, was, um, rather irritated by the cavalier tone of the response. So he thinks they ain't coming, does he? Jones snapped. Well, let him alone. He'll damn soon see for himself. And he did. And so he did, because shortly before noon, a breathless courier reined up with a message from Stuart's adjutant, Major Henry McClellan, who had been left pretty much alone to hold down the fort back at cavalry headquarters on Fleetwood Hill. Now, the courier from McClellan announced to Stuart that a federal column was just then approaching Brandy Station, which meant that they were squarely in the rear of the Confederate battle line at St. James Church. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Battle of Brandy Station, North America's Largest Cavalry Battle by Eric J. Wittenberg. This is yet another title in the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, and, in our humble opinion, is one of the best books in that series. 
In fact, that statement will be true of several of the History Press's books that we'll be recommending here in the Gettysburg Story Arc. But anyway, whether you're a cavalry nut or not, Wittenberg's book on Brandy Station is an excellent battle study and ought to be in your Civil War library. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, and also find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. Speaking of which, a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Kevin, Molly, Lucius, Peter, Jeff, and Catherine. Thanks also to Miller and also Kate for their donations this past week. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the action at the Battle of Brandy Station. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast was sponsored by Scribner, publisher of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War by Pulitzer Prize finalist S.C. Gwynn. We're happy to team up with Scribner to promote this excellent book, which looks at the pivotal events during the fourth and final year of the Civil War. We enjoyed Hymns of the Republic just as much as the author's excellent biography of Stonewall Jackson, Rebel Yell. Hymns of the Republic is on sale now in hardcover, ebook, or audiobook. Pick up your copy today.